Good evening. Welcome to Nighttime. I'm Dave Wager, your host, coming to you from the studios here at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute. It's a half hour of quiet meditation and thinking. It's important we know what God's Word says and we apply it to our lives. I so enjoy the fact that God made it simple in life to follow Him. You might say, how is it simple? Well, His directions are clear. And as long as His directions are clear, it's simple. It gets very difficult when the directions are confusing or muddled especially if you want to do what's right, but God's directions are very clear. He makes it very clear that sin separates us from Him. He also makes it very clear that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us so that we could be in God's family, we could be forgiven. I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that I'm in God's family. I know that God loves me. I know that He's got a plan for me. I know that He's already in the future. I know that I can trust Him. Those are all great things. You see, that makes it simple to follow Him. What makes it difficult is my own longings and desires to be God. I want to control what I think and what I do. I want to control what's right and wrong. That doesn't work. God alone displays what's right and wrong. And God loves me and He loves you. And if we listen to Him, We'll do right. I think it's time for all of us to come to God and just thank Him for the fact that He didn't ask us to do anything we couldn't do. You might say, well, there's people that could persecute you and and try and stop you. Yes, that's true. But all they could do is kill the body. And the body is just part of who we are. This body one day is going to go and rot into the ground. And then we have eternity with God. They can't destroy that. They can only destroy the physical possibly and only if God allows them to. See, we can't allow the physical in this life to be the most important thing that we have. We need to make sure that we understand the spiritual side. The physical doesn't control the things that are important. We can always say no to physical things. It's our choice whether we want to listen to God or not. I thought that maybe I should just read the book of Jude on the program Nighttime and see how long it takes us to get through it. It's only one chapter. It starts in the first verse, obviously, or the first chapter, where it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father and kept for Christ Jesus, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude identifies himself as a servant. So many of the New Testament writers do that. They're servants. They've understood that they were made to be servants that you and I will never be fulfilled in this life if we think others need to serve us or God needs to serve us. We're the servants. We're not the masters. We come to God and we ask what it is we need to do today so that we can do that and fulfill our servant responsibilities. 
Jude is a servant. And he tells us that right at the beginning of the book. If you want to live in the context of the way that you were made, if I want to live in the context of the way I'm made, I need to understand that I was made to be a servant. And any other position I take in life will not work. And servants, their main job is to obey. Not to understand, not to create what's going on, but to obey the master. And if you have a loving master, this is a good position to be in. John 12:26 says that if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Very simple. If you choose to be a servant of God, and that's the only way you'll ever be fulfilled, you don't have any rights. You give them up. You look at people and you think of what you can use, your talent, your ability, your, your life to help them be what they should be. You think every moment of the day, what is it my master would want of me today in this situation, no matter what the situation is? When you wake up in the morning, what is it that the master would have me do today? As you go to sleep, you thank the master for the day, for the provision, for the opportunities that you had, and you get up and do it again the next day until he says your job is finished and he takes you home. Being a servant isn't a bad thing if God is your master. Being a servant is an awful thing if you're your own master. Being a servant's an awful thing if somebody else is your master. Being a servant is awful if Satan is your master. Those things will destroy you. And you'll try and figure out ways to get out of being a servant because that's not fulfilling. Indeed, we were made to serve, but we were made to serve God first and foremost. And if we serve anything or anybody else, the fruit of that is going to be tremendous disappointment. Well, Titus understood that he was a servant. Paul in Romans 1.1 understands that he's a servant. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Isn't it wonderful to be somebody who knows what you're about? Paul knows that he's a servant. He knows that he's been called to be an apostle. He knows that he's been set apart for the gospel. What do you know about your life? What do you know? Not what do you think, what do you feel, but what do you know? Knowing that you're a servant of God, get you got to make that clear. You make that clear to yourself. You, you get up in the morning and you realize, am I a servant to me? Am I a servant to whatever? Or am I a servant to God? You straighten that out every day. Before you go to sleep, you ask God and look forward to what's going to come up the next day. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Let's look at Jude again, Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. He, he knows what he's about. Here's what I'm doing. What is it you're doing? I promise you, if it's not pointing to God, it's not what you're supposed to be doing. As a servant, as one who's made as a servant, my job is to wait upon the orders of the master. And when the master has everything running the way it should, people will look at the master and say, what a wonderful master, not what a wonderful slave. I'm the servant. Jude was a servant. Paul is a servant. 
and Paul in Romans six twenty two talks about how those of us who have been set free from sin were were servants. You might think, I thought I was set free. You are free to be the way you're meant to be. You're meant to be a servant of God, not a servant of your urges and desires, not a servant of your government, not a servant of the financial system. You've been meant to be a servant of God. Romans 6.22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. You have become slaves of God. You finally get into the groove of what you're meant to be. Believe it or not, you will never enjoy this life if you keep trying to avoid being a slave to God. Those who get it, they get it, and they understand that being subject to God is the only thing that matters. God will guide. He'll direct. He'll make things happen. He'll take you home when you're supposed to be and your job will be finished. It's, jo- it's God's job to take care of you. It isn't your job to take care of you. It's God's job. You need to show up and be willing and, and be willing to listen. Once again, if you listen often, I keep saying, I'm so glad God didn't ask me to do something I couldn't do. I can listen to him. Paul also describes those who, who don't serve. He says in Romans sixteen eighteen, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Smooth talk and flattery, they justify what they do. They don't serve the Lord, though. They serve their own desires. You do realize that our desires, my desire, your desire can be our God, little g. It can be what we serve. We need to be able to say no to our desires. Because our desires will take over if we can't say no to them. It's something you practice. It's something you should practice. Paul talks about it. Jude calls himself a servant. He's writing to those who are called beloved in God. And he has a wish for them right away. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy. Not getting what you deserve. He wants each one of us to understand that God is not going to give us what we deserve. We deserve hell. We deserve a separation from him for eternity. We deserve all kinds of things we're not going to get. We should rejoice in the fact that God's mercy is abundant and available to us at all times. I've often said that if you're not one who rejoices in God's mercy and in his grace, then you have never been convinced of the depravity of your soul. All our works, as Isaiah said, are like filthy rags. You and I are not worthy to stand before God. But God says, I want you to stand before me. I am going to pay the price for you to stand before me by sending my son, Jesus, down to the earth to die for you. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You and I need to relish in the mercy of God, the fact that he doesn't want to give us what we deserve, but give us far more than we deserve. That's what grace is. But I'm always intrigued with how the words are used, the order here in Jude chapter 1, the second verse. It says, may mercy, comma, peace, 
comma, and love be multiplied to you. I think when you understand mercy and when you understand grace, I think the next thing that comes to your soul is peace. Because you've made peace with God. And until then, you're wrestling around trying to figure out how to obtain that peace. As I look around the world today, I see so many, so many people who are not at peace. We have anxiety troubles. We have depression. We have suicide. We have anger issues all over the place. Anything but peace. Peace can only come from us understanding our sinful condition. If we're not going to acknowledge God, if we're not going to acknowledge the fact that he loves us and he extends his mercy to us, we'll never be at peace. Peace comes from standing in the right position before God. I am not standing on my own merit. I'm not standing in front of him as his child because of my goodness or my works or, or the family I was born into or even the ministry that I work in. I'm standing before him on the merits of his own son, Jesus Christ. I am God's child. I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that he has a plan for me. I know that he has the future covered. When you really know those things, you have peace. If you like peace tonight, perhaps you've never understood God's mercy. Perhaps you've never dwelt upon his grace, which has given you more than you deserve. Perhaps you don't know God. Because peace is a byproduct of accepting the mercy of God. And those who understand God's mercy live at peace. And they are positioned to do the next thing, which is to love. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Love. To love God, we know the definition of that means to obey him because he's perfect in every way. To love each other is to serve one another. When we get a chance to serve another person, we should take advantage of it because that's what we were made to do. You might say, well, who will take care of me? You'll be fine. God is the one that takes care of his servants. The third verse of Jude. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude says, you know, I wanted to write to you and just enjoy the fact that we're in God's family. I wanted to write about the wonders of mercy and grace, the peace that God gives us, the love that we get to enjoy. But I can't. I need to write to you about the people who are destroying faith, who are destroying the idea of who God is. We need to contend for the faith. The idea of contending for the faith is something we don't think about a whole lot. The word contend just means to struggle, to earnestly struggle, to earnestly contend for. And he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, begging you, desiring for you to understand that you need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
I don't think anything is different today. We need to contend for the faith. If you know God, you need to speak up. If you know the scriptures, you need to obey them and live as an example, as a light in a dark world. The fourth verse goes on to say, for certain people have crept unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He warns us that there are people. There are people who have crept in unnoticed. They, they're part of our churches. They're part of our ministries. They're, they're not really visible as far as being those who are evil. But they're controlled by the evil one. They really don't understand mercy. They really don't understand God. They're not servants of Jesus Christ. Oh, they know what to say. They know how to act. But they're not one of us. They're not part of us. So they're dangerous. They're dangerous because they can quietly and secretively begin to speak to us in ways that appeals to things like our nature, like our urges and our desires. For certain people, have crept in unnoticed. God knew they would do this. Ungodly is what he calls them. They're people who don't know God. They don't act as if God would act. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They deny the master. They're not servants of God. What are they servants of? Money, fame, power, comfort, servants of themselves, servants of the evil one, servants of, of what? Just not servants of the Lord. The distinguishing mark of a believer is the fact that they understand mercy and grace, that they're people who live at peace. They know their significance and security are wrapped up in Jesus. And they're servants of Almighty God. There are those who don't understand that. They're part of our everyday life. The fifth verse, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He wants to remind us of the accountability that will always take place. Those that are among us that are not really a part of us one day will be exposed. I think they can be exposed on this earth as well. There are those that live really apart from the peace that passes understanding. There are those that don't really see themselves as servants of God and servants of others. They honestly believe that they needed to work enough for them to be in God's favor. They deny the very mercy and grace of God that is the only way to approach Him. I've often wondered when I've heard people teach the gospel how often they've talked about you better behave all your life or perhaps you were never a believer in the first place. What they're talking about is you need to act right or you'll never be in God's family. 
or you weren't a part of God's family in the first place. John 10, 28 and 29 tell us, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. When I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, my hope for all my future, my hope for mercy, my hope for grace is pinned on Jesus. Not on me. It's not pinned on my good works. It's not pinned on my sanctification. It isn't pinned on, on me living the rest of my life the way I should. There's no scale when I stand before him where he says, well, your good outweighs your bad, so I guess you're still part of my family. In fact, God actually puts it in a family context. I have two daughters. My daughters are going to be my daughters no matter what they do. They could stand up today and say, I am not Dave's daughter. They'd be wrong. They could declare it. They could change their name. They could go and get tattoos on their forehead that says, I'm not Dave's daughter. They're still my daughter. You see, when God adopted Dave Wager, he became my heavenly father. And he alone is my father. He is the one that is responsible for me being in his family. I'm not even responsible for that. I've just accepted the gift that he gave me. It isn't my goodness. It isn't my works. It isn't my abilities that keep me in God's family. I could never deny what Jesus Christ has done for me. Some think that if you think that way, you'll live a, a crazy, loose life. It's just the opposite. Think about it in terms of adoption. A child understands what two parents have done for him or for her when they were parentless and helpless and hopeless. It's not the child who paid to be in the family. It's the parents who did. If an adopted child ends up in a good home with two parents that love them and care for them, as they get older, they will realize the special gift that those parents gave to them. And they're always a part of that family. Not because of their goodness, but because of the goodness of the parents. In fact, an adopted child only has one qualification to be adopted, and that's neediness. The adopted child is needy, and the parents can provide for him. That's how I am. I'm needy, and God can provide for me. And he did. And if I ever lose that perspective, if I ever lose that idea, then I lose what mercy and grace is all about. There are people who have crept in and they're not noticed and they're judgmental. They look at how you live and try and judge things and it's not how it works. Fifth verse, I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved people out of the land of Egypt afterward were destroyed because they did not believe. And angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah 
and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serving as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defiling their flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These hidden reefs that your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam on their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. We can slow down here. We can see that there are people who are talked about here who don't know God. When you don't know God, you act like you don't know God. It isn't the works of these people that are going to send them to hell. It's the fact that they don't know God. It's the fact that they haven't put their trust in Almighty God, their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're, it's not about their works. It's just obvious that those who don't know God act like they don't know God. Some of the most dangerous people in the world are those who act like they know God but don't and have this secret life that is very dangerous. Not only that, we're warned about those who secretly join us because they don't know God even though they want to act like they do, and how they might influence us in our decisions. But remember, there's people that always justify how they live. And their justification may sound to you and me like it's something that's valid. In fact, there's nobody today that got up and said, I have really bad reasons for what I'm doing, so I'm going to go do all these things and work out all these bad reasons, that's, that's not why they act. They have good reasons in their mind. So the angels, the angels that gave up their estate, I don't understand everything about angels, but for some reason they decided not to embrace reality, but to embrace the lie that Satan proposed to them. I'm not sure how that works. We'll let God deal with that. But the angels didn't stay within their own position of authority. They had a position and gave it up. I guess you could say that about mankind. Adam and Eve at first were not sinful. But their choice made them sinful and their sin separated them from God. Sodom and Gomorrah. They were obviously living in a way that didn't honor God. But I would bet that everyone who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah justified the way they lived. 
It'd be like today, those who are involved in the homosexual lifestyle or those that are involved some other way would be justifying how they live. And us, listening to them, that's not how it should be. We listen to God. God made male and female. God made us to be who we are. He crafted us while we were in our mother's womb. We need to remember that. There are those who are sneaking into the church today trying to get homosexuality, trying to get the sexual sins of this world acceptable to the church. They're not. They never will be. Sodom and Gomorrah is used as an example of that. Or they may have their reasonings. But when your reasonings don't align with God, you're wrong. 100% of the time. Well, that's as far as we're going to get in Jude tonight, I guess. I invite you to read the whole book. Listen to what God says. Enjoy who God is. I'm Dave Wager here in the studios at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute. Thanks for sharing this half hour with me. Good night for now. Thank you.